Grab your Bible and turn with me to Isaiah chapter 40. Well, now that Advent is here, I think it's important that we start with a time of confession. So I need to know this morning, which of you started listening to Christmas music before Thanksgiving? Go ahead, just raise your hand. Oh, boy, it's worse than I thought. It's worse. All right, how many of you started in October? Anybody in here? Oh, boy, we got Alan, you? Oh, I wasn't expecting that, man, to betray me. You know, I mean, you just, you, you guys have wronged the holiday of Thanksgiving. You have. You, you, no, I'm, I'm mostly kidding. I'm also pretty serious. But there are a lot of opinions, a lot of opinions on Christmas. There are some people like Alan who love it, uh, who start in October, who can't wait to listen to it. Others of, of us are a little bit like a Scrooge. You don't wait until the week of Christmas to listen. <laughs> That's me. Uh, but there is something about Christmas music even I cannot deny. It's nostalgic. It's often associated with happy memories, and it, it makes us feel, and especially those of us who don't feel very much, it makes us feel kind of warm and fuzzy. And, and Christmas just makes Christmas, Christmas music just makes Christmas feel like Christmas. It's a big part of the holiday. And as a Christian, there are particular songs that have given us a vocabulary and an expression for why Christmas is so important. There are songs that signify the, the joy we feel this time of year, like the song Joy to the World. You like that one? It says, Heaven and Nature Sing. Or, O Come, All Ye Faithful, which says, O Come, Let Us Adore Him. Then there are other songs like the one we sang that speak to that longing we feel for God, or a song like O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. Then there are other songs that I think really capture the heart of Christmas. One of those songs is called Hark the Herald Angels Sing. We sang a little bit of it earlier. And that famous song has this, these words in it. It says, Christ by highest heaven adored, Christ the everlasting Lord. Late in time, behold him come, offspring of a virgin's womb. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see, hail the incarnate deity. Pleased is man with man to dwell, Jesus our Emmanuel. Isn't that awesome? Just so much depth and richness there. So this year for our Advent theme, we actually took one of those lines from the song. It's the lines you see on the screen, veiled in flesh. That line speaks to the mysterious miracle that happened in Bethlehem 2,000 years ago. And that miracle is what we call the incarnation. The incarnation, that's a theological term taken from Latin, which literally means enfleshed, enfleshed. So the incarnation refers to that moment when God the Son, the second person of the Trinity, who has existed from all eternity and is fully God, assumed or took on a human nature, being conceived by the Holy Spirit, born to a woman and living a human existence. That union, that joining together of a divine nature and a human nature into one person of Jesus Christ is the incarnation. So we say Jesus was and is God incarnate. When he walked the earth, he was God who came down to us. And yet, there was a veiling of his deity in a human body. And that mystery, that, that mind-blowing truth that is hard to comprehend, is what we're going to examine this Christmas season. We're going to do that by walking through the four traditional candles of Advent, which are hope, peace, joy, and love. We're going to take each one of those themes and see how Jesus in his incarnation actually display those truths for us, veiled in flesh. Today's candle, as we heard earlier, is the word hope. 
And the passage we'll unpack today to show us the hope of Jesus is a passage we probably don't look at typically at Christmas time because this passage was written hundreds of years before Jesus ever came to the earth. This passage is from Isaiah, and it's what we call a messianic prophecy. Now, it's a big word, I know, but that, that phrase, messianic prophecy, it simply is a future prediction or promise about the coming of the Messiah. The Messiah, who was this heroic figure that God said would come and, and save his people one day. And this is a huge theme in the Old Testament. From Genesis 3 with Adam and Eve, to Abraham, to Moses, to Samuel, to David, to the prophets, we read over and over about this hero who's going to come. He's going to save his people. He's going to be in the line, a king in the line of David who will usher in the kingdom of God. He's going to bring peace and joy and justice to the people. He's going to save God's people from their enemies. And he comes to be called the Messiah, the Messiah. So this passage today points forward to the coming of that messianic figure who we now know is Jesus. But, but let's not miss the context in which Isaiah gave this original prophecy. He's been talking in this book in the previous section about how God's people were going to face judgment for their sin. Specifically, they were going to be taken off captive into exile. You'll remember we talked a lot about exile when we walked through the book of Daniel. But following his prophecies concerning all this bad stuff like God's judgment and exile, Isaiah then offers a word of hope. He points God's people to what's going to come after the exile and more specifically to who will come after the exile. He tells them that God is going to do something. He's going to do something the world had never seen before. And even though we now live on the other side of this prophecy, we're going to see that what Isaiah says has tremendous meaning for us still today. And especially as we begin our celebration of Advent with the first candle of hope. So let's walk through this text. And as we do, I want to show you four reasons that Jesus is hope veiled in flesh. Look with me now at Isaiah 40. Let's start in those first two verses. Comfort. Comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Let me remind you one more time, the significance of this text, of this verse, is found in the light of what comes around it, its context. This message was originally intended for God's people who had been suffering for decades in exile. Their homeland and temple had been destroyed. They lived in a foreign land under a foreign power. And to make matters worse, Isaiah told them that this was all a result of their own sin. They did this. They committed idolatry and worshipped other gods. They turned away from the one true God. So their hardship and the pain that they were experiencing, that was a result of their own sin, their own sinful choices. And it's into that pain that Isaiah brings this message. He wants them to see that exile and judgment, that is not the last word for God's people. This is the last word, comfort. Comfort, my people. Notice who this message come from, comes from, your God. And after all God's people had done, after all the sin, God still identifies himself as theirs. Their God. He said, I'm your God. They're still his people. And at the lowest point of their lives, he wants to bring them comfort. says that this message is to be spoken tenderly. God is drawing close like a father to a child to bring this message of hope. And here's the message he wants to bring. It's that the warfare is ended, the iniquity is pardoned, and you have received double from the Lord's hand. 
why, why is that so important? Why is this such an incredible message? Well, again, think about the setting. Think about the hopelessness and the despair, this constant fear and strife that Israel faced. And here are three words of good news to the people. First, he says, her warfare is ended. A quick side note, the reason we have these female pronouns, her and she, in these verses is because God's people are often referred to as a woman in a covenant relationship with God. So it says her warfare is ended. That's the people. And what this first piece of good news means is that all the fighting, all the death and despair will be over. God's people will be safe and and living in peace again. But this wasn't just warfare against man. This was also warfare against God. See, we know sin is warring against God. That's what sin is. And God wanted his people to see that their battle against him would one day be no more. That they'd have peace. They'd have a relationship with God again. Here's how. Because the second word of good news, he says, her iniquity is pardoned. That word iniquity, it's another word for sin. The pardon means to forgive, to wipe away, to remove the guilt. So the sin that God's people had committed against him would one day be forgiven. God's people would be restored to a right relationship with him. Then the third word of good news here is that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. What's that? What what is the double? Well, this is referring to God's grace. See, even though the people had sinned against God and deserved his eternal judgment, God said he was going to so lavish his mercy and grace on them, it was described as double. This is incredible news for a people who had endured incredible suffering and judgment for their sin. And eventually, we know Israel was released from exile. Some of them made it back to their homeland to rebuild. But we know today, as followers of Jesus, with our New Testaments coming after our Old, that there is a greater fulfillment to this verse. As we will see over and over again in this passage, Isaiah is pointing to a hope that is ultimately fulfilled in Jesus Christ. The authors of the Gospels in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they go to great lengths to show us the connection here. They'll often quote these very verses, as we'll see in a minute. So take your Bible and flip forward to me to Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2. Luke is one of those Gospels that tells us the origin story, the birth account of Christ. And here in Luke chapter 2, verse 25, verse 25, we, we have this scene where Jesus is being brought to the temple by his parents. He's being dedicated in obedience to the law. And there in the temple, there's this guy. His name is Simeon. It says that he's been waiting. He's been waiting all these years there, praying for God to do what he promised, to see God's Messiah. Watch what happens. Luke chapter 2, verses 25 to 32. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. This man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him, according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace, according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. What was Simeon waiting for? What does it say? says the consolation of Israel. That that word consolation is another word for comfort. Simeon knew that there was more to what Isaiah had prophesied, and he was looking, looking for this comfort for his people. And he recognized as he held baby Jesus in his hands 
that he was witnessing the fulfillment of that verse. He makes all these allusions here to the book of Isaiah, and he says, he says, my eyes have seen your salvation, God. Simeon knew what we now know too. Jesus is the Messiah. He's the one everyone was waiting for. He's the one foretold by the prophet Isaiah. He is the hope of the world. And in these first two verses, we find the first reason. Jesus is hope, veiled in flesh. Here it is. Number one, Jesus is forgiveness experienced. The New Testament tells us that Jesus is our comfort. Through him comes the comfort that God promised his people. Uh, 2 Corinthians 1, verses 3 through 6 say this. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. It's a lot of comfort. Verse 5. He says, For as we share abundantly in Christ's suffering, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. There's the comfort. It's also through Jesus that our warfare is ended. Romans 5.1 says that, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We're no longer God's enemies because of our sin, but Jesus actually restores our relationship with God. It's also through Jesus that our iniquity is pardoned. Ephesians 1.7 says that in him, in Jesus, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. See, Jesus is the reason we can be forgiven because of his sin or because of his death on the cross, taking our place, taking our sin upon himself. We can be forgiven by God. And Ephesians 1.7 also tells us that it's through Jesus that we receive from the Lord's hand double for all our sins because he says it's according to the riches of his grace. I love that. It says God's grace overflows to us, not because of anything we've done or deserve, but because of Jesus. So Jesus is hope veiled in flesh because he's the only way we can experience forgiveness that we desperately need for our sins. Let's keep going with Isaiah's prophecy, Isaiah 40, verses 3 through 5. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed. And all flesh shall see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Uh, these verses show us that, that flowery, poetic language that often accompanies prophecy. Uh, Isaiah is using imagery to describe the coming of God back to his people. In the ancient world, whenever a royal person or a dignitary would travel, there would often be a crew who would go before them to prepare the way. And what they do is they would literally remove trees or rocks or other obstacles in the path. They would straighten out the roads. They would fill in holes and, and they would attempt to make that travel for the king or the queen as smooth and as uninterrupted and as quick as possible. That's the picture Isaiah adopted to describe the coming of the Lord. He wanted the people to see that we need to be prepared spiritually for God's coming, that we should have an expectation for him. Because, here's the key, he says, the glory of the Lord will be revealed and all flesh will see it together. It's really unbelievable for Isaiah to say something like that. The idea that every single person would actually see the glory of God, that was ridiculous. Remember the story of Moses? 
Moses asked God, he said, God, show me your glory. God said, Moses, if I show you who I am, you will die. Isaiah, when he had his throne room vision of God, he fell on his face. He said, woe is me. God's people were used to the glory of God being held back and hidden by a veil in the the tabernacle or the temple where only the priest could go in. And he had to offer sacrifices. It It was a very private thing. But Isaiah says here, he's saying that one day, this day is going to come when everyone will see the glory of God. And we find out again that this was fulfilled in Jesus. Here's the second reason Jesus' hope failed in flesh. Number two, Jesus is glory revealed. His glory revealed. Verse three from Isaiah is quoted by all four of the gospel authors. Each time they tell us that this verse was fulfilled by a man named John the Baptist, who was the cousin of Jesus. Uh, let's just look at one of them in John chapter 1. It'll be on the screen, John 1, 22 and 23. So they, the people, said to him, John the Baptist, Who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? Here's what John said. I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. And that, that's as plain as it gets. John says, Hey, you remember that verse from Isaiah? That's what I'm doing. God is coming, and I'm preparing his way. So he preached, and he baptized. He called people to repent of their sins. And when Jesus showed up, John simply said, that's him. That's the guy. He was the glory of God. The Gospel of John tells us that Jesus was the glory of God. John 1.14, it says, And the Word, Jesus, became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So just as Isaiah prophesied that one day people would see God's glory, Jesus fulfilled that. When Jesus walked this earth, he was the glory of God on foot. As people spoke with him, they spoke with God. As people touched him, they touched God. As Hebrews 1.3 tells us, Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God. He was and is God. But why then did so many people not acknowledge him as God? Why didn't they see it? Why did they reject him and call for his death? Well, this was part of that veiling. As Jesus took on flesh, he did not lose or give up his divine nature. He didn't stop being God. But in taking on that human nature, some of his glory was hidden. Those who had eyes to see could see the truth. But most people saw a Jewish carpenter from Nazareth who said and did some strange stuff. But let me tell you, that will not be the case when Jesus comes back again. When Jesus returns for the second time to this earth, he will come in the fullness of the glory of God. Those who do not know him will run and weep in terror. And those who do know him will rejoice and weep no more. He came the first time as a humble infant in a manger, but he will come the second time as a warrior king to establish God's full and permanent reign on the earth. So Jesus is hope veiled in flesh because he is glory revealed. Let's keep going in Isaiah's prophecy. Look at verses 6 through 8. A voice says, cry. And I said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass, and its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Here we have another voice crying out with another message. This message concerns the promise of God's enduring word. These are famous verses that were picked up in the New Testament by Peter and James. 
And the key to these verses is, is the contrast he gives us between man and the Word of God. He says, flesh or, or people are like grass. Or their beauty is like the flower of the field. Why, why do you think he used grass? Why, why grass? What, what, what happens to grass? Here in Olathe, we cut our grass down. In fact, if you don't, the city will come and put something on your door and make you <laughs> cut your grass. They will fine you or whatever. But even if grass is not cut, what happens? Still, it fades. It withers over time. So, so grass is, is temporary. It's transient. It's here today and it's gone tomorrow. And he says the same is true of us as people. In today's world, the quality of life is higher than ever and longer than ever. Life expectancy has increased as we've gotten better medical care and technology. They have found ways to help people live longer. But you know what they haven't done? And what they will never do? They haven't found a way to keep people from dying. Ten out of ten people on this earth die. It's a good statistic. Our bodies, they, they, they wither and fade like grass. One day all of us will pass from this earthly life. But there's something, he's saying, there's something that will last forever, and that's the word of God. God's word does not change. And that's Isaiah's point here. He's talking to God's people about the future hope that's coming after this judgment and exile, and he's pointing to that day when forgiveness will be experienced and glory will be revealed. And he wants to make clear that day will come because of the un eternal, unchanging word of God. God made promises through Isaiah and he kept those promises in Jesus. So here's the third way that Jesus is hope veiled in flesh. Number three, Jesus is promise kept. He's promise kept. The Apostle Paul tells us something incredible about Jesus in relation to the promises of God. 2 Corinthians 1.20, he says, For all the promises of God find their yes in him, Jesus. See, when Jesus came as the incarnate son, God in flesh, he fulfilled all these promises in this book about God saving his people. John told us in his gospel that Jesus is the word. He's the word made flesh. He's not just a testimony about the word. He is the word. He's the un unchanging eternal word of God himself. So here's what this means for us and our hope today. Jesus' hope failed in flesh because he does not change. Like the word, he's eternally the same. Hebrews 13.8 says, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. That means we can trust him. We can place our hope in Jesus because when people fail us, he won't. When people leave us, he won't. Even when life itself fades and falls like the grass of the field, those who trust in Jesus will live forever. Jesus is our hope because Jesus is promise kept. Let's look at the last part of this prophecy from Isaiah, Isaiah 40, verses 9 through 11. Go on up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. Behold, the Lord God comes with might and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. 
in light of all that Isaiah has told the people of God about this future coming hope, he wants to make sure they know that they have a job to do. They are to be heralds, messengers of good news. They're to go up on the mountain, lift their voices and shout to all the people, Behold, your God. And what are they to behold? Well, there's three images which tell us three things here about God. First image Isaiah gives us is that God will come as a conquering king. When God comes, he will display his power and reign over the earth. He is in charge and he will rule as such. Second image, he tells us God will come as a generous giver. Those who are a part of his kingdom will receive his rewards. That word recompense can also mean wage or fruit of victory. So God will generously give his people all that he wins through defeating their enemies. And the third image, he says God will come as a gentle shepherd. So the hope is not only that God will come in power as a king or generosity as a leader, but also caring as a father. He will lead his people and carry them and care for them like a shepherd with his sheep. That was the good news message that the people of God were to proclaim. That was their mission. Tell the world of the coming of God. And as you've hopefully caught on by now, this too was fulfilled in Jesus. Here's the fourth reason Jesus is hope veiled in flesh. Number four, Jesus is mission received. He's mission received. See, we've been given the same calling, the same mission that Isaiah gave the people of God. It's to say to the world, behold your God and to point them to Jesus. When Jesus came to the earth, when he left heaven where he had dwelled for all eternity, and he came and took on flesh being born to a virgin, he was the coming of the Lord. He was the gospel message wrapped up in a person. And he fulfilled these verses perfectly. Let me show you. As we saw in the first image, Jesus came as a conquering king. He didn't do the kind of conquering that people expected. He didn't take up a sword. He didn't sit on a golden throne. But make no mistake, Jesus came to rule. First recorded words out of his mouth were, The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe. He put demons into submission. He reversed the curse of sin. And he led his people by dying for them. On the cross, Jesus conquered sin and death and all the evil powers of the world. And he established his mighty kingdom in the church and in our hearts to be spread all over the globe. Second, just as we saw in Isaiah, Jesus came as a generous giver. He gave sight to the blind and life to the dead. He multiplied food and comforted the outcast. And on the cross, he gave the greatest gift of all. He gave his own life in the place of sinners like me. And he said that all those who believe on his name will receive all that he has as co-heirs with him. And third, just as we saw in Isaiah, Jesus also came as a gentle shepherd. Do you remember what he said in John 10? He said, I am the good shepherd. And as a good shepherd, he sought out his lost sheep, he found them, and then he laid down his life for them. Jesus says, all those who follow him, he saves, and he keeps his flock safe and sound for all eternity. Do you see what Isaiah was telling us? Jesus is the message of hope. That Isaiah charged God's people to declare. And he's commissioned us to do the same thing today as his followers. It's our responsibility to tell people that Jesus is the hope of the world. And what better time to do that than right now, this Christmas season? One of the strange things about our culture today is that people who are not religious, 
who care nothing about Jesus or his church celebrate Christmas. They will put up a tree. They'll watch movies on TV. They'll exchange gifts looking for some kind of joy or meaning or purpose to it. I was talking recently to one of the members of our church who grew up in a Buddhist family. And he told me that even though his family still practices Buddhism today, they've always celebrated Christmas. It's just what people do. And that means we have an opportunity over this next month to point people to the real meaning behind the season. Look, people are looking for hope. They're looking for a reason to celebrate no matter how bad of a year it's been, no matter how messed up life may be. People in our community will celebrate something. And it's our responsibility to tell them what the celebration is about. It's our chance to tell them why this time of year is such a big deal. That what happened 2,000 years ago with that baby in the manger wasn't the end of the story. That God came here, but that wasn't the end. He came here to die, and he died for you because he loves you. And through him, you can have life and so much more. We are to be those heralds declaring the message on top of the mountain. Behold your God. So let me challenge you today. What can you do this Christmas season to demonstrate that Jesus is hope veiled in flesh? How can you make that message clear to your neighbors, your family, your coworkers? Is there a way maybe you can use the holiday season as a door to a gospel conversation? That is our call this time of year. Not to get lost in all the other stuff that's going on, but to be people of hope. Look, if Jesus is hope veiled in flesh, if he's the only hope of the world, then he must be the hope of our lives too. And he must be the hope we share with others. So as we navigate this this busy season, all the money spent, the food ate, all the things we have to do, don't miss this opportunity to say that Jesus is forgiveness experienced, glory revealed, promise kept, and mission received. Jesus is the hope of the world. Let's declare it, and let's live like it. Would you bow your head with me?